Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Today's episode features the wonderful and wise Dr. Mona Fishbane, one of my most cherished mentors. Our friendship has spanned two decades, and I am really excited to introduce you to her bright mind and her big heart. Mona is a clinical psychologist as well as senior faculty and former director of couple therapy training at Chicago Center for Family Health. She lectures nationally and internationally and has published numerous articles on couple therapy and neurobiology as well as on intergenerational relationships. She's been the recipient of honors and fellowships, including a grant from the Templeton Foundation and the 2017 Family Psychologist of the Year Award from the American Psychological Association. Mona's book, Loving with the Brain and Mind, Neurobiology and Couple Therapy, is part of the Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology. I feel really lucky to share this wonderful conversation with you. Mona has such a wealth of knowledge about some of the most complex relationship topics, from relational ethics to wise aging to intergenerational healing. And I think it's going to be abundantly clear to you how profound her influence has been on me. Let's dive in. Hi, Mona. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Alexandra. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I am too. I want to start by just shining on you for a few moments, if I may. Sure. (laughs) Our relationship goes way back. It goes back a couple of decades. And I was thinking about our history together as I was getting ready for this conversation. We met initially when our mutual friend, Art Nielsen, started this couples therapist group. And we've been meeting monthly for really darn close to 20 years. And when I I came into that group, I mean, I was still in my 20s. I was younger than all the rest of you by a lot of years and was finding my voice. I really found my voice in that community. And so much of that has been getting to know you, learning from you, learning alongside you. And there's been so many points of intersection. We've had walks and swims and lunches over the years When I needed a therapist, I turned to you and you referred me to your dear friend who has been just a rock in my life for a long time. And then when my first book needed somebody to write the foreword, you were there for that too. And you launched Loving Bravely with your love and your wisdom. It just means a lot to me. So to have you here in this studio, you know, and to have the chance to introduce you to the Reimagining Love community is really cool for me. Well, thank you. I'd like to shine back a little bit of a light on you because it's been so wonderful for me to see all the ways you've taken my ideas and the ideas of other people and made them your own and then developed them further. I love, you know, on Facebook, watching your posts and just the wisdom that you share with the world that I think is so important. So I have a great deal of admiration for you. I'm very grateful for our relationship. I am too. I am too. It holds a really sacred place in my life. 
But I want to start by asking you about a growing edge. This is a question that I ask all of the guest experts who share the space with me. So what is a growing edge that you're working on in one of your important relationships these days? And what has it been teaching you? I've been married for 52 plus years to the man I fell in love with many years ago when we were both very young. And I've had a sense of what that long-term love journey is over these decades. And we're aging together now. And he's retiring this at the end of this academic year. I'm retiring from my clinical practice shortly in, a, in another month. And there's a way in which we're learning and growing together, including the aging process, including looking at the larger picture of what's it all about, this life. That's very important. And we've been locked down together during this pandemic. And, you know, I know many people have suffered with their person they're locked down with or being alone. I'm very privileged to be with my husband, who is a source of great challenge and excitement and partnership for me. Probably the growing edge is how can we maintain a sense of humor and be there for each other in love and respect as we age and support each other uh, moving forward. And, you know, we are aware of life's ups and downs. No one gets out alive, but also no one gets out without some pain and loss. It's been an amazing journey with him. We're we're still learning on the job after five decades plus. And I would say that that's really the, the cutting edge challenge, how to be there for each other as we both go into a new chapter in our lives. The other thing that I hear so loud and clear in what you're saying is that you and your husband hold both the tenderness around aging as well as the humor of it, right? Right. That you, that you find ways of holding both of those facets. And yes, both of those. And we also challenge each other. We call each other on our stuff when it's leaking out or when we're, Mm -hmm. we're off base in some way, we try to do it respectfully. Whenever I write anything, he's my first editor and vice versa. And I know that if he likes what I wrote, that I'm okay to go forward. And if he has a critique, it's usually a loving critique but it's always right on. And I try to do the same for him. So that's really helpful that it's not just all nicey nice. We agree with each other all the time. Mm -hmm. We certainly don't, but we try to do it respectfully and tenderly. I like that word. Mm -hmm. That's part of how the two of you, I imagine, keep energy in the system, that you're playing with intellectual ideas back and forth and you're moving between mundane conversations about the dishes in the sink, as well as more philosophical or intellectual conversations. Right. So for example, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds of all my learning, but um, I'm doing what's called Dafyomi. It's a page of Talmud a day that many Jews around the world are doing. It's a seven and a half year project. And I start with an email summary, and then I go listen to, my, to the podcast or two. And then, and then I come to him and I say, you will not believe what's on the Daf today. <laughs> now, every single time I tell him, first of all, he's delighted that I share it because there's usually some amazing stories or ideas that are shared. He knows the entire Talmud by heart. I mean, and this isn't his only area of expertise. He started out as a Bible scholar. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. And um, look, uh, for me, a, a good day is a day that involves learning and dialogue with someone I love. That could be my husband. It could be friends. So I'm very blessed. Uh, and I think once I stop learning, it'll all be over. I, I, uh-huh. I think it's a great privilege to learn for, the, for our whole lifetime. Ah. I love it. And I would add, you know, around our topic that I've been learning on the job as a therapist, but also as a person and as a writer about couple relationships, I've been learning and continue to learn about new developments in the field and how to integrate new ideas into my work. So it's never stale. Mm-hmm. Once you get there and you're done learning, <laughs> life is kind of over. So I love learning and growing and having a, a growing edge, like you said. Well, and I think that once we've decided that we're done, it creates a kind of rigidity and stiffness. And that would mean you would go into a conversation with your husband. If you decided that you were done learning, that you've got this all mastered, you would go into a conversation with your husband from a completely different positionality. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of your areas of expertise, you know, you do so much training of couples therapists and teaching of couples therapists. So you, you have an expertise and a nuance around understanding the places where couples get stuck, how couples go from regulated to dysregulated. And you talk about different kinds of unhealthy communication patterns and couples dances of reactivity. So talk to us about these dances. Right. So we are interdependent beings throughout life. We need others throughout life. 
And we affect the people around us for better or worse, and they affect us for better or worse. So there's research, for example, that happy couples have healthier minds and bodies and longer lifespan than than distressed couples, because distressed couples, there's a lot of stress, which releases cortisol, which negatively affects your health and your lifespan. So for better or worse, we affect each other. When couples are very distressed, and most of the couples coming to see me in therapy are, they're often very dysregulated. Dysregulated, it's a D-Y-S, dysregulated. It's a term that means not regulated. It's about the emotional regulation of the person. So instead of being calm and open and kind and all that good stuff and centered and mindful, you know, we get mindless, reactive, et cetera. In fact, I made up a term, I like to sort of make up terms to sort of capture some of these things. I call it the five disses of unhappy couples. Okay. (laughs) So they're dysregulated. We already talked about that, emotionally stirred up. Mm -hmm. They're disconnected often. They don't feel that connection. They're disempowered. They don't know how to get through to each other. They don't feel powerful in the relationship. They're discouraged. They've often given up hope. And they're often dissing each other. That's the fifth diss. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what the like official term for dissing is, but it's a (laughs) slang term for treating your partner disrespectfully and blaming them, which is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. And so often what happens is when things don't go well, partners are blaming each other. The blame game, I call it. Mm -hmm. It's a linear view. You know, Family Therapy 101 teaches us that it's not that one person causes another person to react. It's that each person's reaction triggers the other person's reaction. There's a circular quality to it. And being able to help couples look at how, let's say, she pursues, he distances, or she criticizes, he defends, and it could be the other way around, of Mm -hmm. course, is actually a dance they do. So the more critical she is, the more defensive he is, right? Or the more he pursues her, the more she withdraws if they're in that dance. My colleague, Michelle Shankman, and I years ago wrote an article in 2004 called The Vulnerability Cycle, Working with Impasses in Couple Therapy. It's only the greatest article of all time. I just love that article. Well, thank you so much. Michelle and I labored over it. We had taught together for 10 years at the Chicago Center for Family Health. We trained couple therapists. And then we, we were on the phone for like two hours a day for two years. I mean, we really labored over that article. Mm. And what we try to do is to show the cycle of, let's say, criticize, defend, or pursue, withdraw, or any other dance that couples are doing with what we call the vulnerability cycle, in which we not only look at the dance itself, but what's behind the dance? What's the backstory for each partner? We call it survival strategies. For example, why is she critical or pursuing? Or why is he defensive or withdrawing? Mm-hmm. First, we look at the survival strategy is that behavior. Yep. And often it's about how people learn to navigate in their family of origin. That's right. Almost mm-hmm. always. Sometimes it's a cultural trauma that informs how we get stuck in these relationships. Let's say a woman is angry and it turned out that anger really saved her in her family of origin because she was really badly treated. And that was how she knew it wasn't really all her fault. But under the survival strategies are vulnerabilities. A woman who's pursuing may feel lonely and abandoned like she felt by her parents when she was a child, when her partner isn't there for her. And so the vulnerability is the loneliness or the abandonment feeling. And so she then pursues him. He feels that she's doing it with a critical edge, let's say. Mm -hmm. And he remembers that his parents were very critical of him and he felt inadequate. So his feeling of inadequacy is his uh, vulnerability. And then he responds by either being defensive or withdrawing or attacking back or whatever. Those are his survival strategies. So we try to help the couple go beyond behind the scenes of their dance or their fight to understand what's the more tender feelings that are being expressed through these often difficult or obnoxious survival strategies. Mm -hmm. Then we go to the family of origin. And once I hear the backstory of my client's survival strategies and vulnerabilities, I'm so compassionate with them. I don't judge them for doing stuff that even may be very counterproductive, like criticism or withdrawal. And then I try to help them be more sympathetic to each other's vulnerabilities and survival strategies. And they themselves reflect on what are their vulnerabilities and survival strategies. We draw the cycle 
And then some couples actually put it up on their refrigerator. This is a dance we've co-created. And we're also both kind of victims of this dance, right? But instead of blaming the partner for what's happening, people are taking more responsibility and being more thoughtful about how they're co-creating this dance, even though that's not what they want to be doing. Yep. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. You all who are listening right now, Dr. Mona Fishbane has just given you, to me, the most profound window into understanding these places that we get lost in our relationships. And Mona, you know that I've taught vulnerability cycle mapping to every cohort of Marriage 101 for 20-something years, every group of graduate students I've ever trained. It's in every e-course that I ever teach. I've taught it to thousands and thousands of people because it is the most helpful way to move from, just as you're saying, that finger pointing, because our survival strategies, they can be a bit icky to look at, right? When our partner moves into a survival strategy, we can get critical of these places that our partner ends up going until we understand why they go there, all of the context that puts them at risk of going there. And as you were saying, I mean, I've never met a vulnerability that I can't have infinite compassion for, right? The vulnerabilities that we come into relationship with warrant tremendous compassion from ourselves and our partners, but we are at risk of losing sight of our own and each other's vulnerabilities when all we do is focus on the survival strategy, the criticism, the defensiveness. Right. And I think that one of the things that I do also is I help partners articulate their feelings from the vulnerability rather than from the survival strategy. So if she says, I'm feeling lonely and kind of out there without you here, I really would like more time together. That's very different from you're never around. You're so selfish. You're married to your work. You know, you're a blah, blah, blah. (laughs) It's a name. And when we speak from vulnerabilities, I feel lonely. I'm scared. I'm, I feel inadequate when you criticize or whatever that tends to call forth compassion and empathy from the partner. When we attack them with survival strategies, that elicits defensiveness and and counterattack or shutdown. So we get the opposite of what we want when we come at our partner full guns blazing or, or with survival strategies. So a lot of this is about helping people understand their inner process, their inner needs and yearnings that are legit and helping them get their needs met more successfully. Yes, that operating from the survival strategy rather than the vulnerability, people end up confirming their worst fear, right? They end up confirming their worst case scenario. And it is not, you are not saying it is easy to speak from vulnerability. It is like literally (laughs) woven into the word. Vulnerability is the word vulnerable, right? It feels real vulnerable to voice loneliness, to voice shame, to voice fear that I am inadequate in your eyes. That is really, it's not easy to do. And it's the place we need to dip our baby toe into the water of if we want to be able to step out of these awful cycles that keep us trapped. Right. It's not easy for any of us to do. It's particularly not easy for men in heterosexual relationships who are socialized to be strong and not have soft feelings or vulnerable feelings. They can be angry, but not scared, lonely, inadequate, et cetera. So we're dealing with a double whammy when we're dealing with heterosexual couples. There's another piece of this that I want to just mention that when we're doing the blame game or we're doing me versus you in that fight before we get to the 
the sort of nitty gritty of the vulnerability cycle, often the couple is doing a power struggle. They're fighting over who's going to win, whose narrative is going to win. And it's really me versus you. And I just would like to say that we live in a me versus you culture. It's a very individualistic culture. It's all about competition and dominance and winning, which I have a lot of feelings about, needless to say. Yeah. So a lot of my work is also integrates the research of John Gottman and other researchers of what makes for happy couples. Mm -hmm. So we have some really good data on, that I can incorporate in my clinical work. And one of them is that happy couples cultivate a sense of the we. They don't lose the I and the you, those don't go away, but they can also really hold a sense of we, which is really, really important. So the power struggles is what I and other feminists have called power over, mm -hmm. right? Power over is how we usually think about power. I can make you do what I want, but there's more nuanced views of power. And I, I've written on this and I, I feel very strongly about it. One is power with, which is what we're talking about with the we. How can we create, co-create a relationship of respect and fairness and empathy? How can we co-nurture this relationship? That's part of the, the we, the, the power with. And then there's power to. And power to is the ability to be my best self, the ability to live according to my values. So for example, I'm a bit of a klutz and I don't have depth perception. So, <laughs> and I also don't like dirt being tracked into our house. So for our whole marriage, I've asked my husband to take off his shoes when he comes into the house, as I do also. Mm -hmm. He does, but sometimes he leaves them near the front door or the back door or whichever door we're coming in. And I don't necessarily see them and I might trip over them. And then I might have a huge temper tantrum because, you know, he thoughtlessly left his shoes near the door, <laughs> which actually I did ask him to do that, but you know, maybe not quite where he left them. Uh -huh. Instead of, you know, laughing or saying, hey, honey, we both don't want me to fall. You know, I have a tendency to fall or whatever. Um, you know, could you put him over to the side or whatever? Well, so when I let loose at him with my temper, for about a nanosecond, I feel great. I mean, the anger is so empowering. It's so exciting. I feel mm -hmm. like, and then right afterwards, I am mortified that that's the person I've become. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not who I want to be. And my husband is hurt. And while I get over it really fast, he kind of he gets mad slowly and then he holds on to it for a while. So it's going to be a long repair process. Yep. And also, I don't want that relationship. I don't want a relationship where I'm constantly, you know, lashing out at him or vice versa. So I think about who I want to be in this relationship. And when I'm in my best self and I can pull this off and I'm doing better at it over the years, mm -hmm. I can choose who I want to be in this relationship mm -hmm. and, and how I want to be. And that's power too, the power to be my best self. When I talk about power to, power with, and power over, we're talking about the larger issue, particularly power to and power with, is what I call relational empowerment. How can I have the power to be the person I want to be, hopefully get my needs met and know how to articulate my needs to my partner, be authentic in my voice, and make room for his voice as well? And so that's what I call relational empowerment, which I think is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so much in what you're saying, and I love that you are reminding us that we get to choose who we are in our relationships. And part of why we practice emotional regulation, pausing before we fly off the handle, is not just to spare our partner, but it's also to spare ourselves, right? To cultivate that sense that I deserve to feel really at ease in my own skin. I deserve to look at myself in the mirror and feel like I'm somebody who can meet my own expectations for how right. I show up. And that when we do have that like fork in the road and we choose power too, I really want to make sure that we like land that, like that we just put a hand on our own hearts and say like, look at me asking for what I need rather than flying off the handle. Like, look at me meeting this challenging moment differently than I used to be able to. Absolutely. And also co-creating a relationship of love and compassion and trust, as opposed to anger and blame. You mentioned the fork in the road. I actually want to talk about that for a second, if it's okay. Yeah. It's a term I made up in the middle of a session with a couple. It's actually in my book. Uh, it's Eric and Lisa, this couple who are exemplifying everything I'm writing about in my book. Okay. Mm -hmm. Lisa complains that Eric's not compassionate enough, and he never learned how to do empathy when he was growing up and all that. He's been working really hard on it. 
and he'll replay a scene in therapy, either in couple or even individual sessions of how he blew it, how he, you know, she got, she was critical and he got really defensive and then they got more polarized and more distanced from each other. And I kind of work with him to imagine a fork in the road, right? Where she's critical and he has, let's say she says to him, you know, you never help in the house, you're never there for me. And the well-worn path, the old automatic habit for him is to get reactive and then go to his study and close the slam the door for good measure, right? To basically, mm-hmm. and that makes her feel abandoned. So it's really bad. But we've worked on what else could he do in that moment. Now this is retroactive in the session. And he thinks about it and he says, you know, I could really hold her pain and I could just be there for her instead of running around, you know, doing what I've done my whole life, going down that old path. So I literally have him imagine a path, like a fork in the road in a forest, going down the old well-worn path versus this new path. One day he comes to me in a session and he says, you know, we were in the basement and she was complaining again about how I don't help her and whatever. She was doing the laundry and she was mad that I hadn't taken the stuff out of the dryer. And I started to feel agitated and I started in my mind to go, be ready to go down the old path. And I thought about our work and I took a breath. We took the pause and I said, Lisa, tell me what I can do to help you right now. I want to be there for you. And he said, she melted into my arms. (laughs) So, Oh my God. As he's telling the story, we're all crying. Oh, of course you are. Because, oh my God, what a moment, right? Because it was after the fact, we were always like redoing the scene. How could he have done it differently? And the same thing, of course, with her. But in the moment, he brought the fork in the road to the basement. That's right. That's right. I love it. I love it. And that's choice. That's choice. And he got the goodie of being able to notice and land that when he made a different choice, she had a different response. Exactly. So it was like he got the pride of getting to watch your face light up when he told you the story. He got the pride of his own, like, holy crap, this stuff works. And he got the most important prize, which was Lisa softened, right? Right. And he could feel effective. He could feel like, oh my gosh, there are things I can do to make a difference. Because so often in that dance, the way we feel is like nothing I ever do is good enough. Nothing I ever do is enough. Exactly. The dance just keeps on going. Could I say a a, a couple words about choice and habits? Because I think it's very relevant here. Mona, you can say whatever you want, really. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, yes, I'm just here. Okay. You know, I was in my career, I was, you know, tootling along as a couple of therapists. I started writing articles about it. And then in 2004, I went to a neuroscience seminar and I was blown away, totally blown away. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, my mouth was open the whole time. And I had my hand up the whole time. I was like, I was like a neuroscience virgin in that class. Everybody else knew something about neuroscience except me. <laughs> I was like totally excited. So I went back and I started reading. And then I trained with Dan Siegel, who was my mentor and wrote the foreword to my book. And Dan Siegel and um, Alan Shore, who gave the webinar, the, the seminar back in the day in Cape Cod, created the field called interpersonal neurobiology, which looks at what happens in our brains and our bodies, because it's kind of both, and our relationships and how we affect each other for better or worse. So I started writing articles about integrating all this with couple and family therapy. And then Norton asked me to write a book on the topic. And it took me four years. And then my book came out in 2013 called Loving with the Brain in Mind, Neurobiology and Couple Therapy. Which will be linked in the show notes. Along. Great. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And so there's a few things from that I've learned along the way from neurobiology that I'd like to share. One is about habits and this fork in the road, the choice. Most of our lives are lived on the basis of our lower brain, which we share with many animals. We have a higher brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is behind our forehead. And Like other animals, we have a whole set of instinctual responses to protect ourselves when we feel threatened. The source of all that is the amygdala deep in the brain, and the amygdala is always looking for danger, and it keeps us alive. It's a good thing. If you're walking in a forest and you see a poisonous snake, you want to get the heck out of there, and that's the amygdala that gets you out of there. But the amygdala is biased towards the negative because it's always looking for trouble. And when it senses trouble or danger, it sets off the fight or flight response or in some cases, freeze if it's life-threatening. When Lisa feels abandoned by Eric, she goes to fight. When Eric feels threatened by Lisa's criticism, he goes to flight. Of course, I'm oversimplifying, but that's that's, the basis. mm -hmm. So that's one issue. A lot of what we're trying to do 
is to help clients bring their prefrontal cortex, their higher brain back online. Because when you're, when you have an amygdala meltdown, if I have a tantrum with my husband over his shoes, um, I see red, which means my prefrontal cortex is offline. And neuroscientists have actually found that that's true. So we want to bring the higher brain back online. Now, the other issue is that most of what we do is not only driven by our emotional brain, the lower brain, it's also driven by habits. We're creatures of habit. So Eric and Lisa have been doing their dance forever. He's been going down that pathway, that well-worn pathway. She has too. But the good news is that we have choice. One of my favorite quotes comes from Viktor Frankl, who's a survivor of the concentration camps. And he said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our freedom to choose our response. And I just love it. We're not rats in an experiment where, you know, we get zapped and then we do whatever the response is, or we get a treat at the end. And so we go for the response. We're people of choice. Mm -hmm. We can have that fork in the road. But it takes a lot of thoughtfulness to really bring that in. And a lot of what we try to do with mindfulness training and other techniques is to help people pause and think about their values, think about who they want to be, like I tried to do when I, with, with the shoes on the door, so that we actually have choice and are not just going on automatic pilot, which I think is really important. It's really important. It, it reminds me of what you were saying in the beginning, that list of social connectedness and movement nutrition is part of it. Like there are those things that we do in the background also to set the stage so that we have more capacity to hold steady and be a bit less reactive. And right. And for all of us with two years of a pandemic and an incredibly uncertain world, our zone of tolerance is certainly more narrow, which just means that all of those practices that we do, we have to do them every day really to maximize the chances that when we are at that fork in the road, we can remember this conversation, we can remember to pause, we can remember to hook ourselves back into our values. I totally love what you're saying, because I think that we need to prepare for those moments when we're likely to get triggered. And I'd like to also address how the family of origin fits into all this and yeah. the triggers. We want to cultivate mindfulness and intentionality. Who do I want to be in this relationship? And if we do that ahead of time, and we do that often in therapy, then in those, we prepare for those moments when our amygdala is going to get all revved up, when we're going to get reactive, and how to prepare for that fork in the road, how to prepare for those moments when we're likely to get triggered yeah. so that we can calm down for a moment, take a deep breath, put a hand on our heart, whatever we need to do, and then choose to be our best self as opposed to you know, just get reactive and triggered. Because I think a lot of the times, you know, partners are blaming each other like I'm a victim of you. Right. But I'm also a victim of my own reactivity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My amygdala is making me do stuff that I'm going to regret. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to get me what I want in this relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. It's why, you know, the, the neuroeducation that you're talking about here is really important so that we understand ourselves. I think it also takes some of the sting away. It's not that you are a terrible person. It's that we are all, you know, just the way that you described, this is like our collective hardwiring. This is part of why we get to be here having this conversation because we and our ancestors had amygdalas that kept us safe. So it's this complicated both and of right. this is a part that we need. And now we do also have this prefrontal cortex that we need to cultivate. But there's something that in that way of framing it, it takes some of the sting away that can create shame that why do I have a hard time with this? And then that can, that can make it harder to practice new habits, right? We can sort of feel defeated or helpless or too ashamed to even try. I totally agree with you. And I think that's why what I call neuroeducation, it's kind of like psychoeducation, yeah is actually de-shaming for clients. Mm -hmm. We all have an amygdala. So sometimes if someone's getting reactive in the session, I might say to them, you know, I, of course I want to hear what's bugging them and help them articulate it better. But I might say, are you curious what, what part of your brain is activated right now when you're so upset? I love it. <laughs> and love and they it. might say, yeah. And I'll say, well, it's your amygdala. And I give them a little teeny, you know, <laughs> neuroscience 101 lecture for three <laughs> seconds. And I explain about the amygdala. And it's very de-shaming. And I say, everybody has an amygdala. We're all in this together. We all have to know when to use it wisely or how to, how to tame it. 
And um, actually, some people talk about this like you're an amygdala whisperer, <laughs> like a horse whisperer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what we know is that when the amygdala takes over the brain, when you have one of these anger attacks or whatever, the prefrontal cortex goes offline. The neuroscientists have found that. So like, how do you recover? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you need to really have techniques to recover your best self and your bring what I call prefrontal thoughtfulness to amygdala reactivity. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly it's possible to do, but we need to give our clients tools to do that. And by the way, when I do this de-shaming, like we all have an amygdala, that doesn't get the client off the hook of like, no. okay, I, I have an amygdala, I can it just let it rip. You know? it, wasn't, it wasn't me, <laughs> right. it was my amygdala. Exactly. <laughs> because we also all have a prefrontal cortex, which allows us to be our higher self. Mm-hmm. So it's de-shaming and it's also inviting a responsibility. Yes. I think that also makes getting over the hump to make the repair a bit easier also, right? Because certainly we would love to get to the point where there are zero blowups, zero triggers, but I don't know. I'm not there yet. I hear that you are still at risk of snapping at Buzzy. So we're not, Absolutely. We're not going to get there, but, but this <laughs> framing then helps us notice more quickly that we are not showing up the way we want to and then re like reposition ourselves to make an right. apology to say, darn it, my amygdala is, I love you have something that you say a lot, which is like asking yourself, like, why am I talking? <laughs> why mm-hmm. am I talking right now? Right. right? Like why right. like that pause, the pivot, the repair, we aren't going to be perfect. So we need to have a willingness to repair and then the skills to repair. Right. And one of the things I, I also say is I ask clients, what's the story you're telling yourself right now about your partner? Mm -hmm. Which is an amazing question because it's like, it points to the fact that we are storytellers and our stories have consequences. So if my story is my partner's a a selfish so-and-so jerk, that story leads to certain kind of behaviors on my part. If my story is my partner is overwhelmed and didn't notice that he didn't wash the dishes in the sink and maybe I'll do it for him this one time and maybe we'll have a conversation calmer later or I know he's very stressed out, I'll just do it for him as a favor. Those are very different stories. So I do like to help clients think about their own narratives about themselves and also about their partner. And I guess I'd like to also bring in the family of origin here. If it's I was okay. just going to say, you're giving yeah. us a really good segue because those stories that we bring in very often are from our family of right. origin. So right. So just there, that yeah. is a huge part of your work is helping us understand and address the intergenerational wounds. Right. And what Michelle Shankman and I were doing is looking at the dance, the interactional piece, then bringing in the intrapsychic, the individual piece of vulnerabilities and survival strategies, and then linking that with the family of origin, where usually that's where that all, it all comes from. I have this thing called the magic question. So I'll tell you how it works. So I'm dealing with Eric and Lisa, let's say, and Eric is feeling very put upon by Lisa's criticism and he gets reactive. And I say to him, Eric, is it familiar to you that someone close to you is kind of critical and really wants you to change and you're feeling really threatened by it? So I'm asking it in a very sympathetic way, describing what he feels with Lisa. And he says, well, that's how it was with my mother after my father died. She was always on my case. And the only thing I could do to get away from her was to go to my room and escape. And I felt inadequate when she criticized me. So the vulnerability is the inadequacy, the escape to his room is his survival strategy, like he does with Lisa. And the link is how he felt with his mother. So what happens is when Lisa criticizes him now, automatically the old memories with his mother criticizing him get triggered. And by the way, his mother wasn't a bad woman. She was just overwhelmed with her own grief. She was very overprotective with with Eric because she didn't want him to die too, like the husband had died of a heart attack. So she really wanted to make sure Eric was safe. And that felt to him like criticism and being overbearing. But it's really important to ask that question because Eric then really opens up for me and for Lisa a window into this little boy's soul, this little boy's experience. (laughs) And of course, we're both very, and if if couples love each other, they're usually quite sympathetic at that moment, right? Mm -hmm. And then I ask Lisa, is it familiar to you that you're feeling so alone and abandoned in a relationship? And then she talks about how her father, when he got drunk, was verbally abusive and he would scream at the daughters. and the mother couldn't stand it. And so she'd go to her room and get depressed and shut the door. And so Lisa felt very abandoned by her mother and let down by her father. So when Eric goes to his room and shuts the door, it's just like her mother did. And here's the neurobiology behind all that. The amygdala not only looks for danger and sets off fight or flight when there is danger, the amygdala 
also processes and holds the emotional components of old memories. So those old memories of Lisa's abandoning mother and abusive father and of Eric's critical mother are in the amygdala, essentially, and they get re-triggered when Lisa criticizes him or he withdraws from her now. That's kind of how it works. So I call it the magic question because it's kind of like open sesame. It's like a magic question that opens up the conversation. Instead of blaming each other, they're each hearing how the other was hurt in childhood. If the couple has some love left for each other, usually there's some tenderness towards that young child, which I think is really important. But I want to say, unlike some therapists, the goal here is not to leave the blame with the parents. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not your fault, it's your parents' fault. (laughs) which a lot of individual therapists, I'm afraid, do. They encourage sometimes cutoffs, et cetera. Right. And, um, well, look, in very extreme situations of ongoing abuse and danger, you don't want to put yourself in harm's way. But a lot of people spin stories about their parents that are very, very damaging and very pathologizing. The other piece of my work of my passion, in addition to the couples and the neurobiology, is intergenerational relationships. I've been influenced a lot by Murray Bowen, one of the founders of family therapy, and Ivan Bojarmeni-Naj, another one of the founders. His contextual therapy has been very important to me. And Naj really focuses on healing intergenerational wounds, which is a lot of my work. Um, What Naj claims, and I agree, is that we're not free to love and be our best self in our current relationships with our partner or our children if we're schlepping around old grudges and anger at our parents. You call it waking from the spell of childhood. Exactly. That we are often under the spell of childhood where we are thinking of ourselves as disempowered children and our parents have all the power. And part of this is really waking from the spell of childhood and becoming curious about our stories about our parents and their stories and learning, kind of learning the backstory, learning what our parents' own journey was like, coming to see our parents as real people with their own journey, their own vulnerabilities and survival strategies. You talk about seeing our parents as our grandparents' children. Right, exactly. That's a quote from Michael Kerr. Think of your mother Mm. as your grandmother's daughter and get to know her that way. Mm. For me, that was mind-blowing. It's like, oh my God, my mother was once a little girl. And and it's really changed my whole view of my ancestors, including my mother and my father, as opposed to having resentments, etc. And often what happens if we're carrying around those old grudges we may be collecting damages, but at the wrong address from our spouse or our children. One of the goals, which I think Norman Deutsch said this in one of his books, is that we want to turn ghosts into ancestors. So instead of being haunted by the family story or our parents or whatever, how can we see them more compassionately and be curious about their own journey, which I think for me is really, really important. In that crucible of allowing ourselves to grieve that we didn't get what we needed and holding it right next to deep compassion for all the ways in which our parents were limited. Like once we can start to hold that tension of grief and compassion, that opens us up, right? It's so, it creates such a deep heart opening. That's gorgeous. Absolutely. Totally. Mm -hmm. Right. I think very often therapists kind of take the easy road of blaming parents and that keeps us from doing the work we have to do, which is blending the grief with the compassion so that we can step into something different. Absolutely. I love your pairing grief and compassion. And the truth is my experience is that when people do this intergenerational work, and often I'll have them do it in the context of of couple therapy, I don't have time to go into all the details of how to do that, but I've written on that if people are interested in some of my articles in my book. But I find that there's a positive synergy, a positive kind of cross-fertilization of being a better person and more adult with your parents and your siblings and your family of origin and being a better partner to your partner. Yes. That holding grief and compassion, as you put it, are really important skills in a loving couple relationship. Yes. Because our partners do let us down. Our relationships are not perfect. We have to absorb the the imperfect and the grief of that and the grief Mm -hmm. of maybe being hurt sometimes, even though we don't want to stay in a really toxic relationship. But relationships are complicated. Mm -hmm. Being able to be compassionate with ourselves and our partner while also being aware that we need to repair what's hurting is really important. And that's a skill that when you can navigate that with your family of origin, you're much better able to navigate that. And also, when you heal some of the wounds with the family of origin, you're not looking to your partner to heal all your wounds for you anymore. 
Well, because that, that's right. It's not that we put at our partner's feet, like, look at what my mom did to me. So therefore you can't do that to me. Like that's, right. that's ineffective, right? We can't, our partner cannot heal what we went through. And at the same time, like I'm thinking about a couple that I've been working with. And as we've been doing this work, he's now developed a mantra for himself where he says, I want to be the love that she's always wanted. Uh-huh. That's how he wants to be with her. He can hold tenderness for the little girl that she was and he can offer something different. It's not to make up for it. It doesn't take it away. It's not his responsibility. And yet at the same time, he feels really empowered to be for her, you know, a kind of connection, a kind of attachment figure that she hasn't had before. Which I think is really lovely on his end. And on her end, hopefully she's done her family of origin work so she's not demanding that he be the perfect love that she never got as a kid, because that's really a, a trap. That's right. It's a combination of our doing our own work, being our own best self, and being there for our partner. It's a very important kind of back and forth of self-regulation and co-regulation. But if we only look to our partner to heal all our wounds, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be in trouble. We're going to be constantly disappointed. That shift has had to go hand in hand with her own individual work. That's a segue. I want to raise another topic here, which is the issue of relational ethics. It's an issue I'm working on right now. And it's about how what we do with our partner affects them for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And we know that in terms of the research on happy and unhappy couples. So we don't usually think about our obligations to other people and our responsibility. And in our culture, we think about our rights. You know, what are you doing Mm -hmm. for me today? Or what are my rights? And I'm all for rights. Don't get me wrong. I Mm -hmm. I love living in a democracy. But That's not the whole story. Part of the story is what do we owe other people, our parents, this is Naja's work, and also our capacity for relational responsibility with our partner. In fact, Naj, Bojermeni Naj, defines autonomy as including the capacity for relational responsibility, Mm. which is mind-boggling. We think Uh of autonomy as I can be my own person. I don't have to think about anybody, right? But autonomy, the way he says it is you're able to be your own person and think about the consequences of what you do and say on the people around you, Mm -hmm. which I think is an amazing relational skill. But it's really about how we're interdependent. We need others throughout life. We don't outgrow that. And it's also about proactive loving, Mm -hmm. which is a term I sort of made up. I I think that like most of the, much of the time we experience love in a passive way. Like I fell in love. I fell out of love. What are you doing for me today? And proactive loving is being the best lover you can be. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that just sexually, mm-hmm. but I mean that in every way. Um, being thoughtful about how you are acting and whether you're on autopilot or whether you're doing that pause and living according to your higher values. Mm-hmm. That piece of it pushes back, it subverts the cultural narrative, right? It pushes back against this idea, this very me-focused um, cultural narrative that we have. So it's like, it's that, again, like that mirror between the dynamics in a couple's relationship mirror and reflect what's happening at the larger cultural level as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like in high school, we teach debate. We don't teach dialogue. Well, that's, right. that's <laughs> right. That's right. right? That's right. Uh-huh. And I think there are places that are trying to teach skills of emotional intelligence and social mm-hmm. intelligence and mm-hmm. nonviolent communication. Right. But it's not the main narrative in our culture. And couples take that in. And the assumption is I have to win here. Somebody's got to win. I want it to be me. Mm -hmm. Our relationships are not a zero-sum game. Yeah, that's what we are challenged and invited again and again to do in our intimate partnerships is to figure out how do we maximize all of this for both of us? How do we create the conditions in which we both feel as seen, as heard, as felt, as understood as, as we want? And how can I hold you in mind in a way that doesn't diminish me? Yes, absolutely. It's not finite. It's not transactional. Mm-hmm. I know that people are going to want to have more access to you as a teacher and a guide. Your wisdom is so broad and it's so deep. So where can people go to learn more about what you've done and what you are continuing to do? So I think the best way is to go to my website, Mm monafishbane.com. And I'm no longer accepting new clients, but I do quite a bit of teaching and it's all on Zoom now. So it would be more available and, and I, I need to update it, but basically I post, you know, what, what's coming up. And on my website, I also have listed all of my published articles. I've written a bunch of them on the topics we're talking about. 
if anyone finds an article there that they're interested in, I can send them the PDF. Mm-hmm. They just uh, email me through my website would be the easiest way to do it. And I'm happy to respond. Yeah. And your articles are, you know, they're all published in scholarly journals and they are incredibly readable. You do a beautiful job of making a lot of dense scientific, philosophical, psychological ideas really tangible. And that's what comes through again and again in your academic writing. Well, I really appreciate that. When I wrote my book, I was writing it for therapists, but I was really writing it for everybody. Yeah. It occurred to me as I was writing this book, it's like, you're writing for your reader. Who's the reader, right? And I wanted it to be not only therapists, but also regular folks who wanted to learn about relationships and how to do them better, and also about the neurobiology that's involved in reactivity or habits or great love. So I actually did have in mind the general reader who's curious and willing to go, you know, in some depth, but I tried to write it clearly without a lot of jargon and try to explain things. And also through the story of Eric and Lisa, who it was almost like writing a novel, you know, I'd wake up in the morning, even though they were a composite couple that I made up of pieces of things that I knew and had experienced and whatever, I would wake up in the morning and I think, Hmm. I wonder what Lisa and Eric have been up to. (laughs) What's their backstory? How are they doing today? Yeah. Right. (laughs) So it's a little bit of of writing a novel too. And Uh and it was fun to have them go through the whole book as opposed to different couples. And it was so effective. So the book is called Loving with the Brain and Mind, and it's available all the places where books are sold. Thank you so much, my friend. I'm so grateful for you. I'm very grateful for being invited and for our conversation, our lifetime conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mona, for gracing us with your presence here on Reimagining Love. Dr. Mona Fishbane's work is so foundational to the field of couples therapy, and I hope that you will dig more deeply into her ideas and her writing, much of which is linked in the show notes. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.